action. Oh, Dave, uh, really good having you on the show this morning. So I'm just really keen to find out more just about yourself and how you just got into this role of just coaching some of Europe's top CEOs. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. Um, for those who aren't familiar with my work, I, I spent the last 10 years building venture-backed businesses. And then after a couple of years working in VC, I've spent um, the, the rest of my career coaching CEOs of Series A and Series B companies one-on-one -on -one as they begin to scale their business. And as you know, it's quite a journey of going from, you know, founder in the garage, building a product to, uh, you know, this authentic CEO role as the company grows. And so that's, that's where I support um, my clients as they go on their journey. And then how, how, that's interesting. Right? How did you get into finding this need, you know? Um, because I think what often happens, and including myself, you know, you, you get trapped into your little bubble and hoping to uh, launch a startup and you realize, oh my goodness, I need help. You know? And how did you realize that there were people out there that actually needed these kind of services? What a great question, because it was entirely non-obvious at the time. I mean, coaching has become quite a phenomenon over the last few years outside of the US. It's been more popular in the US for a longer period of time. But I do remember even two or three years ago having a, a talk with, a, with my friend, one of my friends in VC who was trying to convince me why I shouldn't use the word coach. And he, he was saying, you know, this is, it sounds kind of like, you know, you're, you're addressing weaknesses and so forth. But really, you know, the need um, was something that I had felt previously. I mean, I think that when I was, uh, so I, I did three venture-backed businesses. We live in this world of kind of distributed mental networks um, where you meet with someone for an hour, you, you spend about 45 minutes of that hour trying to explain what you do. You get this sort of 15 minutes of gold at the end. Yeah. Um, which is rapidly forgotten and there's no follow-up and, you know, you'll be lucky to get another hour in, you know, in, in a couple of months time. So the need was pretty clear, although it was non-obvious at the time. And so it was quite a, quite a, quite a struggle to, um, you know, to get this off the ground. And, but interestingly, I, I think there is something along, you know, there's this, um, I think it's a, a, a Buddhist cliche or a Buddhist, a Buddhist proverb, which is when the student is ready, the master appears. And I discovered coaching kind of later in my career mm. and uh, uh, found it immensely powerful. And I kind of wished to myself, wow, not only why didn't I have access to this earlier, but why didn't I learn these skills earlier? Because yeah. I've now found out, you know, my, the number one thing I wish I'd, you know, my number one regret as a CEO, as a, as a former CEO, is I wish I'd actually taken coaching training much earlier as I, th I do think coaching is the best way to get the most out of high, you know, high performing talent. And that's essentially what my role is. I don't get to, I don't tell people what to do in any shape or form. Um, I, I, I refrain from giving advice as much as possible, mm. but just asking the right questions, asking powerful questions, getting people to think through things from different perspectives. And it's so powerful. Um, and that I think is the need that I try to address. You mentioned that, um, you, you know, you wish you'd, as a CEO, you wish you'd, you got into this early. I mean, what's a good stage to, to get a coach? You know, for, when well, look, you don't have to be a CEO yeah. to need a coach. I think we all need um, someone who can hold space for us to think through ideas and ask curious questions to help us get to the bottom of things. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, how many of us can, can relate to when you're right up close to a problem, when you're right in the middle of, like a, of chaos, it can be really hard to get perspective. I mean, one of the best ways to get perspective is just to, you know, go on vacation, like take yeah. a, get some physical distance. 
And so the, the art of coaching is to actually, you know, in some ways estrange you from the problem and, and give you that distance so that you can start approaching it from different angles. And then the more mental models you can throw at a problem, you know, you start to see these things in sort of more dimensions. And then often, you know, when you, when you're, when you can get clarity of what the, the right questions are, the, the answers become a bit easier. And, you know, one of the, one of the mantras that I come back to is that in, in, in something like a startup where uncertainty is so, is so abundant, you have to choose clarity over, over certainty. Cause if you wait for certainty, you'll wait forever. And so, you know, that's, yeah, I think that's the art of, of a coach is to help you get that clarity so that you can move boldly and, um, you know, act without, without, without that sort of voice in your head holding you back. I love it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I think that one of the things that attracted, uh, that, that stood out to me was your recent blog post about um, why every startup CEO needs like a chief of staff. Do you want to tell us more and jump into more about that and, and, and your thoughts around that, that article? Yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, story because the article has become um, somewhat controversial. I mean, there's, I, I've, had, I've had people email me being, thank, you know, thank you so much for talking about this role. It's obviously a role that hasn't had a lot of airtime. Yeah. Um, and I've had others, you know, you know saying this is, this is, you know, it's, it's an abomination. You know, CEO should not have a chief of staff. It's just, yeah. It just shows they're weak. Um, but actually, the, the origin is, um, I, I learned a story about how, I believe it was Reid Hoffman used to use his chief of staff, probably someone in your audience will say, no, it's not Reid Hoffman, it's someone else. But it was this fascinating story where the chief of staff would arrive at a meeting slightly before the CEO would arrive and assess the situation, figure out if the meeting was actually ready to be had. Mm. I mean, have you ever arrived in a meeting only to find out the agenda's not really clear, people haven't arrived, et cetera, et cetera. And the chief of staff would, would essentially gate the meeting. And if the meeting wasn't ready, they could either help, you know, get, get the agenda clarified so that when the CEO arrived, they were ready to go, or send a, a sneaky text message to the CEO to say, hey, meeting's not ready. I think you should postpone it. I thought That's this was incredible. Just I love it. Isn't it just, it's, 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 yeah. it's kind of devious, but also kind of inspiring. And that's when I got interested, perhaps not so much in, this, in the chief of staff role per se, but how, um, how, there, are, how there are ways to, um, to essentially make more use of your time. Yeah. And there's one statistic, and I, and I don't have much data to, to back it up. And it was a statistic where I, I said, you know, you can, you can sort of get an extra 20% of uh, performance out of the CEO by having the correct support. Um, but it doesn't seem to be too lo such a logical leap to, to imagine that if someone can help you organize and, and take some of the, not just administrative roles, but so, some of the, give you extra support, you're going to get more out of your day as well as, as a leader. And I don't think yeah. it's restricted to CEOs either. But I do think the role of a, you know, a, strong, a strong supporting team yeah. has something to play, even in a, an early stage startup where we're sort of conditioned to be like, we need to cut costs. We cannot spend as, you know, as any money, you know, even, even a SaaS platform that's like 10 pounds a month, like, oh, I don't know, it's, is it too expensive? And of course, when you look at it in the cold light of day, if it's gonna save you time, often that time has a much, much bigger ROI, not, not just that time, but actually that space to think about things that are not the details. Yeah, so I see what you mean. So if you don't have this kind of person, whether it's a chief of staff or someone that's backing your operations, it almost takes away your productivity and your leadership per se, I guess, you know, you're not able to think uh, six to 12 months ahead because you're always being reactive and, and, and playing catch up. 
I think there's something to be said there. I mean, you know, one of the biggest uh, demands of founder time, especially in the scale-up phase, is, is, is recruiting. And it's, it's quite, so firstly, you're going to spend a lot of time in interviews. I actually think that's not so bad. Like you, you can learn in interviews, you meet people, but it takes an immense amount of time to coordinate. And yeah. so, you know, this chief of staff, this is one example where you can have someone who's a dedicated resource for the founding team. That's not necessarily an, an HR expert, but can start to take some of the, um, some of the, the organization away from the founders so that they can sort of show up at the meeting, not have to go through some of the more administrative stuff. Yeah. And why do you think uh, CEOs are against this, this type of hire? Uh, well, I think it's a mentality and, and not, every, I mean, a number of my clients, uh, it seems to be a trend, right? It seems to be a trend where more scale-ups are, are hiring chief of staffs. It seems to have kind of filtered down from the top. Um, but I do think there is a bias towards spending money and for good reason, right? I mean, like you have to, to um, be frugal and, and resourceful. I think yeah. that's perhaps a better word and make sure that you're getting the most out of the resources that you have. So, you know, if you're, if you're strapped for cash and you have limited runway, it might not be the time to, you know, invest in, in, in uh, you know, dedicated support. But if you, do, if you have some runway, you have a huge demand on your time, it's, it might well be worth investing in something like that to, just to give you that extra space. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I remember in my uh, previous startup, I think um, it got to a point where we literally doubled in staff overnight. And I felt like something is going to burst. You know? So yeah, uh, and I was kind of against this this hiring of of HR. Just thought I just felt like HR or people were it was almost like a go to where people can complain. You know, it's like a, yeah. a complaining department. And I thought, okay, let's just risk this. I just got advice from one or two coaches and said, you guys have got to get someone in, in the people operation. So we, we got someone in, and looking back, it was one of the best hires we ever had. You know, just, it was just, we got so much more out of the staff. We got so much more out of us. And we could almost like make all of our processes a lot more efficient, you know? So it was, uh, yeah, it was, but it was really hard, you know, in retrospect to look back and go, like, it, it didn't feel like it was the right thing to do, you know? But we got pounded by our coaches you know, to, to, to make the plunge. <laughs> well, I think this is a um, I, I, this is this is one interesting. I don't know if it's a misnomer or a, or a bias against HR. So I mean, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of biases growing at the company. One of the first biases I see is is a is a misunderstanding about marketing. So you've got the tech CEO and sort of a dismissal of marketing and you know perceived value and and this kind of fluffy stuff but actually you know you know you know Drucker basically says you know all business boils down to innovation and marketing so marketing has a big role to play when it comes to hr though you said something i wanted to pick up on which is that you know i there's a perception that hr is the the part of the organization where people go and complain to yeah kind of like gossip mongering i've heard this time and again and I, and the one thing I was going to say was this is one of the useful um, terms that I learned in my coaching training was this idea of colluding, which is to adopt kind of a negative mindset of someone who's maybe complaining to you and, and you know sympathize with them. Oh man, that sounds right. Yeah, they, 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 these people suck, and it's not necessarily helpful, right? It's not helpful to to adopt that negative mindset. So I think the 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 art of coaching and to be able to you know observe oh this is the mindset what are other mindset mindsets that we can adopt that will help us 
either take responsibility or you regain control in this situation or accept this situation for what it is. Yeah. I think these skills um, should be, must be linked directly with HR. So it's the HR are not the people known for, um, for who you go to complain to, but who you go to, to help forward the, the hard feedback that isn't being given somewhere in the company. Right. So it's like, you know, the, the complaint arrives at HR and HR is, is nimble enough, is, is, is um, skilled enough to kind of say, well, okay, this sounds like feedback that needs to be given, it, but it's not going to be given by me. I'm going to help you give, you know, have the skills and the support to give this feedback yourself. Ah, oh, brilliant. I see what you mean. So it's not just the money department, it's helping them create the platform for them just to speak openly and transparently to their leaders. You know? Totally. Like, yeah. It should be the coaching department. It exactly. should be the coaching department. You go to HR, you, you, you talk it through. And HR is sort of, they have you back. You, they have your back. Yeah. They listen to you. They trust you. You don't necessarily, you know, sympathize. They, oh man, yeah, you know, we'll help you look for a new job. It should, it should be much more proactive, I think. Yeah. And I think the more that, especially early stage HR can adopt that mindset of like, we're actually the coaches. We're trying to get, we're trying to get a really proactive culture that's taking responsibility for fixing problems. I think that's going to be, that will be a huge uh, move forward for you know the perception of HR in early stage because you're right it does have this kind of a little bit of a re reputation of being like the moaning department and you know what the terrible thing is is that um, I mean most of the time they're pretty good but I think it's just the name and the, and the bad connotation you know I mean we had a chat with Claude Silver a few months ago from um, Benny Media she's uh, Gary V's um, uh, uh, 2IC right and she's the chief heart officer and I mean, Gary Vee even mentions that he, he is the head of HR for his company. And he's got, he's got Claude as the, uh, as the chief heart officer. And that's their kind of methodology internally as well. You know, he's got an open platform for employees to, to chat to him. I think it's about 800 plus people and, you know, and vice versa. So they truly really got that culture and that mix right. You know, I mean, we, we, when hiring this kind of person, what do you think that somebody should look out for? Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, firstly, I'm not, I'm not an expert. I haven't hired a lot of chief of staffs myself. Yeah. Um, what seems to be intuitively obvious is you want someone who's, who's um, I think at, at the very fundamental level, it's got to be someone that you can build a relationship, you can trust, that you get on with, yeah. has high integrity, um, is, um, <coughs> you, know, you know, that soft side is really important. And then mm. on maybe the harder skills, highly organized, um, able to synthesize information, um, you know, the, the, I think one of the ways to look at it is, is to look at the skills that the CEO is weak on, maybe that you're weak on, and then, um, and then hire for those. So if it's organization that you're not a fan of, maybe it could be socialize, you know, socializing. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's difficult for you to kind of um, make connections with people. And so you can sort of start to think of your team as, you know, hiring, hiring, hiring for your weaknesses. Yeah, brilliant. But, you I, know, it's like, like anything else. I think it's going to be one of those hires where ultimately it takes quite a few months to build that trust and that relationship for the, for the real power to come yeah. through a little bit like coaching. The power I think is in the relationship as, as, as much as it is in the, it's in the tasks. And all the, about the relationship. I've, I was uh, chatting to a, just a mate a few months back and he also runs a quite a successful tech startup. Um, and one of the interesting scenario where it backfired on him, I mean, he hired someone and he was also bursting at the seams, got someone in with a very formal HR, practice and um, she was just instilling policies just about clocking in clocking out 
Um, and she, he almost had a few people, you know, leave. And he had he eventually said, this is not working. You know, I mean, you, you're going to have to go. I mean, I mean, he's had engineers that have worked there for like 10 or 15 years that, that, are, that are very fine with a very uh, flexible working hours or fine to work at home. And she just tried to instill all these rules and, and uh, policies. And I guess she was maybe being proactive, wanting to put more structure in. And it completely, completely backfired. You know, on him and her and the company, um, but luckily they were they were able to salvage it in time. You know? So I guess that uh, you're right. The, the biggest thing is to focus on trust and make sure she that person's got to build up trust with the employees before they can just start laying down laws. I guess. Yeah, that's super interesting. And there's a fascinating relationship between process and sort of empowerment, right? And in in many ways, process is the is what happens when for whatever reason, you don't want to trust the individual and you want to, you want to ensure a certain outcome or, or, and so forth. So process, I can see how too much process in a startup is just going to get rejected, kind of like the autoimmune system rejects a bacteria. Too yeah. much process, I think, doesn't work. But of course, too little process has its own set of problems too. So it's like, I, I kind of feel for the person in that position because they're in, they're in a very, they're walking a tightrope. Yeah. And on the one side, you have like people leaving because th this place is too bureaucratic. On the, on, on the other hand, you have people completely like, you know, deer in the headlights trying to figure out what, what to do. So it's a tough, it's a tough role. Yeah, they're, they're going to be the good and the bad cop, you know, but I think the yeah. more the good cop. Uh, they're going to be the, the place people can go to, to to trust, you know. And I, I want to talk a bit about culture. I mean, uh, for us, you know, the way we see culture is, is that, is that organizations are focusing way too much on performance these days as opposed to culture. And, and we've seen over the last while is that the more you focus on culture, you know, you, then the performance becomes like an, a nice add on that you don't have to focus on as much. You know, what is, what is your view on culture and how do you think that leadership to, should take, do you think leadership is taking enough responsibility with culture? Oh, that's such a big question. Do yeah. I think leadership are taking enough responsibility with culture. Well, culture is one of these words that means different things to different people. And if I, if I got a whole group of people together and asked them to define what culture means, there might be some loose themes, but I probably have wildly and importantly different connotations of what culture means, um, uh, which is obviously a problem in any kind of debate because you can kind of take it to mean whatever you want it to mean. Let me get back to your question. So the question was, are management taking enough responsibility? So one question would be, how, how can management take responsibility for culture? Yeah. Um, well, certainly, you know, the, I guess the, at, the, at the most fundamental level, uh, culture should be something that you hire and fire for. Yeah. Um, that, that's one way to take responsibility. Um, another way is to, uh, you know, there's two, two things that culture can help with. One is to incentivize certain behaviors. So understanding the behaviors that you want to encourage, if there can be a link between the way that you think about business and making decisions and so forth, and the, these behaviors, if there's a direct link, correlation, and especially if those behaviors are what, gonna, what are gonna contribute to your success as a company, that's one, one big value of culture. Another big value of culture is of course in, in recruiting um, and creating a place that people want to work for. Um, if, it's, if a culture can help you attract better talent, that's another big ROI of culture. So behaviors and, and recruiting are two big components of this. Um, and, you know, and, and another way of, yet another way of thinking about this is that cultures are somewhat emergent. You know, if you don't, if you don't make an intentional choice around culture, it, it, 
a culture of forms nonetheless. And why I think this is particularly interesting is to think about what are the Ooh, different- Wait, wait, stop there. I just want to digest that. It was actually really good. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. If you're not intentional about what the culture is, at the end of the day, the, it will be some form of culture that's going to rise. There will be, and it may work and it may not work. But one of the things to think about is, is how, so let me tell you what ends up playing out. Right? In many cases, the culture reflects certain ide ideas and behaviors of, of the leaders, mm. right? So the leaders kind of set the tone um, and these things sort of manifest. So any, any kind of dysfunctions of, of leaders tend to you know, cascade out into the culture. And so, you know, one way to think about culture is actually not even to think of it in the, in the form of how should everyone else be acting and behaving? It can be start, one way of thinking about it is, is how, can, how can I use my own self-awareness to, you know, project and be the kind of culture that I want to see in the company, kind of lead by example. And this is, this is I think, one of the roles of leadership is to figure out their own demons, their own biases, their own dysfunctions, and work on themselves because that's one way to impact everyone else. Right. And what's curious is, especially when you see, you know, everyone's got strengths and weaknesses, it's, it's completely expected and normal. Um, and we don't expect people to be perfect, but we, we should expect, I think, especially of leaders, for them to have a grip on their imperfections because they have a habit of, of underpinning the more dysfunctional parts of culture that we, we want to see less of in companies. Oh, so I see what you mean. So acknowledging and realizing, okay, this is what they're struggling, but being very transparent to the company. So they're aware of what those are. Well, potentially, but like, let me give you an example. Let's imagine you have a founder who grew up in a family where there was lots of fighting, lots of fighting and developed a, a, certain, a certain resistance or a certain aversion to certain types of conflict. Um, or had a certain behavior around certain conflict. And that panned out in the leadership meeting in a very, in subtle ways. And it became the norm. And then that particular type variety of like conflict aversion is now being exhibited by the leaders and then the next level and the next level. And all of a sudden, the company's not innovating because they're not, they're not able to, to have constructive and secure conflict with each other and sort of get to the bottom of issues, they tend to avoid it. So that's one interesting link between a, a problem that, it, that is exhibited or expressed in the company and something that happened years ago in childhood that has been completely more or less forgotten or is completely out of the, the subconscious. So I'm just making the link of, I think if, if, if leaders can get a grip on some of their own um, behaviors or habits or thoughts or beliefs around different parts of the, the, the relationship process, they're more likely to kind of observe them, manip them and, and deal with them, manage them, as opposed to kind of pass them off onto other people. But I mean, what do, you, what do you think is the quickest, most effective way to get a grip on this? Oh, well, yeah. So how do you get a grip on your, on your, on your issues? Another way to phrase that would be how, how can we how can we increase self knowledge? Yeah, and it's particularly difficult. It's it's you know I I, I specialize in working with with CEOs and, and founder CEOs. One trait of this group of people they tend to be very high on the assertive spectrum, and what 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 being assertive really means is you're able to kind of defend your ideas, your values, your preferences, 
um, and, and kind of stand up for yourself. Um, this makes, this is one of the reasons founders can start companies, right? They can get people, they can convince people and, and investors say, no, you're wrong. And they're like, oh, I'm right. And, and then eventually yeah. people are kind of persuaded. Well, assertive people are most likely to underestimate their own assertiveness. So like they're more likely to think that they're either like on, on average, um, an average level of assertiveness or even under assertive, even when they're at the top end of the assertive spectrum. And, and it comes with a lot of, a lot of issues. What, one issue is you're much less likely to receive and internalize negative feedback. So, so if, to go back to the question of how do you build self-knowledge, well, one is there's kind of internal reflection. There's like journaling, maybe working through your own ideas with, um, with maybe a therapist or a coach. But there's also, I think, building in channels that people to make it as easy or even expected or you know compulsory to get feedback from the people around you especially you know your close your close-knit yeah. uh circle of trust you know people who can really accept that feedback from um, and it's, it's it's tricky right i mean there's one of the things that i've seen time and again is the the you know people will will, will think of their cultures very open very transparent but the, the fact of the matter is there is a power differential there, you can't get away from it, especially for the CEO. Like everyone in the company in some way reports to you and you kind of hold their job in, in your hand in, in some technical way, right? And so it creates a whole bunch of things that maybe the CEO is not even aware of until we kind of like really look, at, look, look it through. This, this happened to me. I'll tell you what, like my first company, we're talking like 12 years ago, one of my most talented employees who he was like, I, he was an absolutely fantastic designer. I loved working with him comes into my office one day and quits out of nowhere and we end up having this 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 kind of heart to heart i managed to keep him on board and he led that that led to quite a massive culture change in my in my first company and i remember being completely blindsided and being like why has it come to this why haven't you come to me before and that's when i realized wow it's not it wasn't necessarily a weakness on their part it was it was part of the construct of this relationship it's not always easy for people to speak to you. So I think the more proactive you can be about building mechanisms, whether that's, you know, deep one-on-ones or um, different types of you know, feedback uh, reviews and so forth, the more you can be proactive about that, the more likely you are to, to get those nuggets. Before, yeah. and, then, and then it's up to you to do the, the reflection, figure out where they're coming from. I hear this over and over again from leaders of all different sized companies, like even the, the largest to the smallest are just saying, the best thing you can do as a leader is to have continuous one-on-ones with people. So you can have the best tools, the best communication strategies and everything, but you have to have the one-on-one. Well, let me, let me up the ante, right? Yeah. Um, Cause this has been on my mind quite significantly. So all of my sessions are two hours long, one and a half to two hours long. And one of the reasons for this is the first hour, first half an hour, first hour of, of any kind of interaction with another human being, it's pretty surface level. Yeah. It's, it's clearing all the stuff that's going on. It's sort of building up that, that level of rapport, maybe calming down. You know, you're in the chaos of the, of, of the startup. And you come down, you start to calm down. And all the magic happens in, you know, usually like the last 20 minutes. I mean, this happens with, um, with one hour meetings too. Have you ever noticed that all the juicy stuff starts to happen like five minutes before the end of the meeting? You're like, yeah. oh man, we have to stop now. And it's just getting good. Well, part of the reason for that is like as human beings, we just need to like warm up a little bit. It's like when you go for, for you know, to the massage therapist and you go for deep tissue, they don't go straight in with like the punches, you know? Yeah, exactly. 
but they warm you up first. And I think um, there's something to be said, especially in one-on-ones, having a little bit of time to relax. Maybe you, take, maybe you go for a walk and get out of the office, get some perspective. Yeah. And the second hour, that's when you really, you've built that collection, that, that connection, that level of trust. That's when, the, that's when the juicy stuff can come out. Um, anyway, yeah. No, no, it's incredible. And it makes so much sense. I think you're right about that. I'm just seeing a visual graph there. I mean, it, it always is that last 15, 20% of any meeting, that's where the juice comes out. And you, that's why there was a, a follow-up meeting straight afterwards. But, well, uh, totally. And, and, and it usually starts off with the phrase, I wasn't going to bring this up. You know, yeah. they, they look at the clock. It's like, oh man, we've got another 20 minutes. What are we going to fill this with? And they're like, yeah. I wasn't going to bring this up, but, and then it's like, oh my God, we should have started with this. Yeah. And the reason you didn't start with it isn't because people are bad people, they're hiding stuff. It's often because they don't have the level of trust and connection that's just yeah. built over time. Right? Imagine that's you why you know start, those... Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, imagine you could start the meeting with, before we get going, if we have to end this meeting and there's the one question that, that you wanted to end off with, you know, you could ask, ask that, but I guess you're right. Uh, it's a, it's a if only analogy. we're that easy, because often you have to take a bunch of stuff that's like right top of the mind and you have yeah. to kind of get it out the way. You have to kind of, like people are actually going through their minds. You know, one of the insights that I learned as a coach is w- when I leave a session, it, it, it doesn't matter in any way um, whether I have clarity or not. Yeah. Whether I have clarity of a situation. I remember early on in my coaching career, I had a session with, um, you know, quite, quite, a, quite a famous and, and well-known CEO of a big company. I really was sort of punching above my weight in many ways. I came out of a particular session thinking, oh my good Lord, I have absolutely no idea. Like, you know, what, what's going to happen? I don't really know, understand. I'm not even sure we got to the root of the problem, what have you. Anyway, and I, and I was pretty sure, oh my God, like I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've lost this, this client. I'm expecting the email being like, yeah, Dave, thanks so much. The complete opposite happened. It was such a humbling experience for me. They were like, that was the most powerful session I've had. And I came away with some really, really deep questions that like, you know, lingered. And I was, I've been thinking about them ever since. And thank you so much. And it, it made me realize it, doesn't, it just doesn't matter. And, and this happens in leaders too. Like if you have a clear idea of what needs to be done, yeah. it doesn't matter if you're not doing it. The only thing that matters is, is the, is, the, is the person doing it, is the person responsible, is it clear for them? It's the only thing that matters. Exactly. In fact, if, the more clear that you are in your head as a leader, it can, it can often lead to problems, right? Because then you're like, uh, this isn't what I have in my mind. It doesn't matter what you have in your mind. So, um, oh, That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, we could go on for days, but listen, are we, we got to wrap up now. I mean, I just want to just ask you a final few questions. I mean, yeah, how sure. do you spend your day on average just being a, a coach? Well, yes. Um, so I spend, I would say I spend, you know, 30 to 40% of my time in session. Yeah. Um, and that gives me a lot of time out of session. So I, I write, so I have my blog, The Founder Coach, uh, which has done very well. It gets, you know, a few, a few million views a year. And it's a place for me to uh, share stories of my own experience and things that I'm learning. Yeah. Uh, so, so I spend a fair bit of my time uh, writing. I, I have some side projects. So I'm, a, you know, I'm ultimately a, you know, engineer, designer. So I'm, I'm building products on, in my spare time, keeping active um, and, uh, and upskilling. I mean, I think anyone who's into coaching or any kind of personal development, you, you, you can expect they're like heavy users of podcasts, audiobooks, online training, offline yeah. training. It's like, you can't get enough. I mean, what, anything you're reading lately that's just blowing your mind? Um, 
so I'm, I'm currently, I mean, about two or three books concurrently. I've been reading um, quite a lot of books on uh, enterprise sales. So from impossible, from impossible to inevitable. Oh yeah. Yeah. Success formula. Um, I've just started a new book. I don't know if it's any good though on mental models uh, that came out earlier this year. Um, what was the best book I've read recently? Well, interestingly, some of the books I found most applicable in business are actually books about relationships. Um, so one book in particular, and we, you know, we talked a little bit about these issues from the past manifesting in, in the present. There's one book called Attached, okay. uh, which is about attachment theory, which is most people think of attachment theory as relating to children. Well, the new, a new kind of the new, the new science of attachment actually um, has linked these these attachment styles of children to to behaviors in intimate relationships, and predominantly the research has been focused on romantic relationships. But I've I've taken a particular uh, uh, interest in how it applies to co-founding relationships because you know the, the, as the old cliche cliche says, you know, co-founders a bit like like it's, it's a bit like a marriage right you're kind of like Completely. bound by contract big big penalty for leaving you're stuck with each other come what may i mean so, you spend more time with your co-founder than your spouse and you spend more time with, them with your spouse and so yeah. obviously i mean if, if you've ever wondered why these kind of intimate relationships get more difficult with time because like logic should say it should get much easier right relationships should get easy with time we're learning about the person they know more about us we we, we know how to communicate with but it's the complete opposite that happens and one of the reasons is triggers from the past start appearing out of nowhere in a relationship and you get like you know defensive or or anxious or avoidant and what have you so uh, that, that's an interest that one of the more interesting books i've read recently that's incredible. I, I want to digress for like two minutes. I think uh, like a bit of a vulnerable, transparent story about myself. I got married young at 21. I married uh, my childhood sweetheart, I guess, from school. Oh. And anyway, yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, we've been married like 17 years now. And but I remember the, when the first year or two, I mean, people were going, are you crazy getting married so young? It's never going to work. And, um, and I just remember one friend, very good friend said to me, back then he said it's so good to get married young because often what happens is people that get married older they've got so much more issues to deal with whereas you get married young you're kind of building that that relationship as you as you're going on and, and you realize that i see friends that are getting married at a later stage they've built up their lives so much that they've almost got to tear down a lot more you know to rebuild together so the it's quite an interesting one but it never gets easy it's continuous work and uh it's but it's definitely rewarding, you know. So um, and then lastly, um, any like any of any favorite productivity tool or software that you use on a daily basis? Oh, any software that I use on a daily basis? Well, um, perhaps my favorite productivity tool at the moment has been Rev.com. So Rev.com is an app that help that lets you record audio and it, then it transcribes it for you at a dollar a minute. They've just released a new AI-powered ver version that's like 10 cents a minute. Um, it, it's, it, I use it in my writing. So often my writing will start with me just sort of brain dumping into an audio file. Then I, I get, I get the, the transcript and I can highlight the good bits and then re-record it and so forth. Um, the new AI-fueled uh, one is so cheap. You could use it to record meetings 
and get it, the entire meeting to subscribe for like six for six dollars and then you can you know if someone says something in, interesting or insightful in a meeting you can go back and and look at the audio file so that's probably one of my favorites oh that's I'm incredible also a big fan of um zapier i've been using zapier more and more to automate some of my more manual tasks yeah. and it's quite it's a little bit addictive once you get that first few set of zap of, of zaps i don't know if you're a big user of it yeah. um you just you're hungry for more you're like what else can i automate it's kind of fun yeah yeah it's a, I mean, it's an interesting thing about the transcoding and the AI. Something we've been um, testing out internally at High Five is our tool is like ongoing recognition, ongoing feedback. And one thing I realize is okay, it spits in some great like manual or automatic reports. But one thing we're starting to do is because we've got so much data now, we're trying to provide more value to our customers. So what we're doing is we're actually reading the data through some machine learning mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and giving an insights on the conversation. So it's quite interesting. We're actually looking, we're at the, at the alpha slash beta stage now. I'll give you a preview sometime soon. Just about some of the conversations so the leadership can get very good insights of the kind of conversations and the kind of feedbacks happening internally, but not just the actual wording or messaging, but some of the sentiment that's coming across. And is it aligned with, the, with their values? Is it aligned with their mission? You know? So it's, That's super um, interesting. I can yeah. see that as being valuable and it's, it seems to be a trend. Um, there's a number of companies I'm aware of that are using kind of sentiment analysis in different scenarios. It's actually reminded me of another tool which may or may not be, um, may be applicable here. <clears throat> Have you used Loom yeah, at all? Yeah, oh, we love it. We use it a lot, yeah. Well, Loom, Loom as you know, it's a tool that helps you very easily record uh, a screencast or a video. Yeah. So rather than you know have to set it up, you just install a Chrome browser plugin, and then you press a button, and you can record a video, kind of like the way we're recording now. And it's really great for you know it, as an alternative for text, and quite an engaging way to kind of get a message to maybe a remote team. Yeah. And one of the things that makes it an interesting productivity tool is number one, it's actually quicker to record a video than to write. Yeah. However, it can be longer to, to watch a video, but the cool thing is you can watch it at like 2x speed. I'm a, so when I listen to audiobooks, I'm like, I've got up to about 2.5x. Or no, like a, it's crazy. Like a, a brain. <laughs> to, but, but Loom can be very useful. Um, and it's a, it's, it can often be a, a lower friction way to, to communicate um, asynchronously. Yeah, and I wonder how that would pan out in terms of recognition in companies. Yeah, it's incredible. We actually just um, pivoted the last month. We were doing lots of manual reporting to our clients. And now we've just literally talking through their reports on the system and it's helped so much. And you know what I think the biggest thing is that the, the, what I see about Loom and actually just the future of tools and work right now is that it's a lot more personal. You know, people are speaking and hearing from a real person. They're, um, they're, they're getting a very good overview. It's not just a plain report. And the thing that stood out to me and what attracted to me, I actually got a sales proposal for a piece of software via a Loom video. So somebody yes. sent me the proposal and, and spoke me through it because we couldn't meet based on availability. And it was personal. Um, he had loads of empathy and I felt like I could trust him. And I was like, wow, this, is, this makes complete sense. You know? so just for the future of work and where we were going remote, et cetera. You know? I've had the same and I had, I had mixed feelings. On the one hand, I'm like, the, the, um, the entrepreneur me is like, ooh, this is a cool technique. How could I use this? Yeah. Um, but the uh, the you know the as a receiver, it was kind of an enterprise software, and they 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 were kind of looking to me for a sale. I felt I was a bit ambivalent because on the yeah on the one hand I thought it was pretty cool. On the other hand, 
it sets up it really kind of like in terms of reciprocity and they've obviously put some effort in it really requires me to like you know give them a heartfelt no unfortunately <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was not relevant to me at all so it kind of i wondered whether this is gonna be an extra burden of like watching videos of people who research me online and so forth That's but hey look if, it, if it's working i mean yeah exactly so dave thanks a lot for your time today um just uh, yeah i mean how can the audience reach out to you Okay, well, yeah, so um, I write on the medium. So um, s some of the topics that I discussed um, are in the form of essays on medium already. I'm just about to launch my next season of essays, which will cover some of the other stuff we discussed today. Um, I'm on the Twitter at Dave Superman. Um, I don't, I'm not a huge Twitter user, but you can, um, so probably the best is to email me and to do that, you just go to my website, davebailey.com and um, find a way to get in touch. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Just All right. Good luck with you guys over at High Five. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks. Give us a high five. Whoa. All right. Boom. Boom. <laughs>